Welcome to Dispatches. I'm Brian Stiller. Peace is hard to come by. Ask the American and Russian ambassadors in their attempts to find a Syrian ceasefire. In the 20th century, 231 million people died in wars and conflicts. Even so, Stuart Pinker of Harvard said five years ago, I quote, we may be living in the most peaceful era in our species' existence, end of quote. And that's followed by Martin Dempsey, who then was chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. He said that today our world, and I quote, is more dangerous than it has ever been, end of quote. Now, Pinker makes his assertion based on the percentage of killings to world population. So he said 231 million died out of the world population. We are living in a more peaceful era today. But Dempsey, he based his analysis on actual numbers killed. However, if you were a mother or father in Aleppo scrounging for food or pulling your child out from under rubble, cut and crying or dead, what do Pinker and Dempsey mean to you? Who can or will bring peace? Is it possible? Or are we doomed to just limiting what destroys peace? Or softening its blows? Or mitigating its causes? Or providing safe zones so combatants can bash each other's brains out? Assisi in Italy is a picture-perfect town on a hill, awash in autumn shadows, warm and subtly lit by a glowing sun showing off the surrounding valley and churches of all kinds. It was for Lily and I a reminder of its favorite son, St. Francis of Assisi. Surely he's an iconic figure of peace. His story is a good reminder of why his memory matters and why we look to his life and words for spiritual counsel in this intractable issue, a matter made worse by those who we think can do something and then don't. Uh, coming from a wealthy home, in early days, Francis was a wild sort of guy, jailed for ransom. He was released and in time, hearing a clear call for service, abandoned his privilege and gave his life for the poor. The story tells of his attempt to bring about peace during the Fifth Crusade with the Sultan of Egypt. His effort to convert the Sultan didn't work, but as the story goes, he proposed they set a fire and a Christian and Muslim enter. If the Christian survived, the Sultan would convert. The Sultan didn't agree. In Assisi, many people of various faiths we met at what was called the CC 30, Thirst for Peace. The conference was called by the community of Sant'Egidio, a lay movement located in Rome known for its active community on prayer, Bible study, and work among disabled and poor, and especially their interventions on peace. They brokered an end to the civil war in Mozambique in the early 1990s and were part of the most recent peace accord in the Central African Republic. It was 30 years ago that John Paul II brought together Christians and other faiths to reflect on peace. This time we were there, Pope Francis reinforcing his image as a do-something pope. He was the key speaker. And then on the closing day, Christians, we held our own service. The concluding event later that day was a series of speeches, but there was no intermingling of prayers among the multi-religious communications. But how do we find peace? Peace 
Well, it's a reason for the existence of countless NGOs who find their pinnacle at the UN and its multi-agencies. But we wonder, how are we doing on peace? And by peace, I'm asking at the most violent level. For us all, a lack of peace strikes us in ourselves, our families and communities. That matters. But for day here today, as you and I talk, we wonder about how we might achieve peace, say, in Syria. Or what about Sudan, South Sudan especially, and Iraq, and hot spots of warfaring bubbling up around the world? Ask the question and answers will swing the gamut from raw cynicism over the UN and its associates to smarmy and self-gratulatory speechmakers stating the obvious party line. Traveling in places of dispute, I've seen UN and peacemakers ridiculed for their inability to effect a truce or keep warring factions apart. You just need to mention Rwanda in that sentence. Yet I've climbed the hills of Lesbos, Greece, following refugees who just arrived by rubber dinghy across the Aegean Sea, watching as UN peacekeepers wearing their blue berets gently led them to safety. Debate will swirl about as to its value, benefits, and the ideological framework of the UN. That for another time. In this dispatch, my mind is crowded with those of us who met at Assisi. And so as Lily and I wended our way back over the Atlantic, I wondered, what's the value of Christian leaders devoting time and resources to global peace? Now, without painting too broad a brush, apart from Mennonites, my evangelical tribe has talked little about this and given even less time and effort towards it. Much like other aspects of our public engagement, our focus is a bit on an eternal well-being, a focus on peace in the inner life now and in eternity. Our trust in global groups to bring about peace is minimal, and confidence that mainline Protestants and Roman Catholics can carry the can on this is minimal too. But why is that so? First, we see peacemaking as a geopolitical activity, requiring forces equipped to protect the vulnerable. In other words, the ability to protect requires such massive and empowering forces that only governments with authority or capacity are a match for it. Notch this up a peg, and the multi-global networks such as NATO take this level of peacemaking out of the hands of individuals, churches, and communities. Second, we fundamentally understand that conflict, war, and genocide are expressions of evil. It isn't the bad guy, good guy routine. It's more radical. Yes, it's more fundamental in its essence. It pictures the macro system of our creation. Cain killed Abel out of a pervasive spirit of evil. We might call that jealousy. But its origin is the spirit of evil. We create our list of psychological derangements and make equivalents of evil. We draft sociological categories so we can better see sources of conflict. Much of this is helpful in getting a lay of the land, but it never eclipses the presence and activity of evil. Read again the story of Job. Peter called the devil a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Seeing pain and destruction strangle peace by the throat, we support the military to do what they are created to do. But if we cast this discussion within a framework of good battling evil, what then should be our response? Now, this brings me back to this meeting we had in Assisi called Thirst for Peace. Unmistakably, it was run as a Roman Catholic event under Santa Gidio. 
Their wideness and invitation include, included a variety of religions and their speakers. Uh, interfaith dialogue is the ubiquitous line. Trusting the process of dialogue is their methodological master. There were frequent references to love as essential in all religions. Materialism, the arm industry were all castigated. Japanese Buddhists invoked the memory of the atomic bomb in their own victimization. Disagreements were many on who should support whom in Syria. A mother gave her loving testimony in fleeing Syria. Pastor Similian from Aleppo told what it was like to live there. There was no shortage of solidarity. We're all against war. We all want peace. We stood shoulder to shoulder against civil strife and outside aggression. Speeches were many. Good stuff, too. We may have been well served as St. Francis. His example of humility and prayer had become the model around which we conversed as a precursor, however, to the spirit engaging us. There's always the danger that religious communities in such events cast the problem of being that of others. Oh, please don't get me wrong. Words matter. They matter to me. They set the tone. They, they craft the framing of expectations. They declare without equivocation what is not acceptable. Peace is also an issue for us all. The Japanese know better than most what it means to have their own atomized. Here's where I land. Given God's creation is material and spiritual, what is seen and unseen, the battleground of good and evil finds its zones within local, political, social, ethnic, and economic disputes. They become kindling that evil torches into blazing infernos. Why not? At least now. And I speak of my Christian community. Spend resources and time to link with other religions and Christian communities to work on peace. What we do know and profess is the biblical call to prayer, an exercise in which we seem to feel we have some proficiency. And prayer is the most powerful weapon in our arsenal of defense. Within the many prayer groups in the evangelical world, targeting prayer on peace would be a welcome initiative. Let's pray for specifics. Find a person, pastor, politician, doctor, mother, father, and pray for them by name. Pray about something that comes to mind, that they'd be protected, that they would get work, that they could attend school. Take five minutes a day to pray for that one, a prayer of intercession. Press in on God. He can take it. Indeed, he welcomes it. But here's a final caveat. Time is coming when we'll need to accept a responsibility to affect global and regional peace initiatives. Evangelicals being 25% of the Christian population, we can't ignore our role much longer. I know the objections, and many of those I understand. But that doesn't allow us to drop the mantle of our anointing. Peace requires people strong in faith, bold in asking, praying to our Father, exercising our rights as His children, defending those who don't understand the underlying realities or are too exhausted to pray for themselves. This meeting in Assisi was a helpful step in commanding our attention that each of us has a role in speaking about and being used by God to introduce and enact peace. After all, peace doesn't come in sitting around a campfire singing Kumbaya. I'm Brian Stiller. And I serve as Global Ambassador for the World Evangelical Alliance. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To listen to more and to subscribe to Faith Today, Canada's Christian magazine, please visit 
theefc.ca forward slash faith today.